0: And so, there's going to be increasing demand for energy, and our challenge has got to be accelerating investments and technologies that provide low-carbon energy.
1: Welcome to the CityH podcast. I'm Alon Markovich, and I'm here with Anna Stafford, and that was Susanna Pierce. President and Country Chair and VP of Emerging Energy Solutions for Shell Canada.
2: CityH co-founder Miro Sernetig is back for this episode. This time he's sitting down with Susanna to discuss what's unique about Shell's operations and opportunity in Canada compared to other countries and what she's currently working on when it comes to reaching the country and to the company's climate goals.
1: Susanna has spent the last 20 years of her career at the intersection of environmental, social and governance interests in Canada and abroad. Her expertise lies in bringing business, governments, communities, indigenous groups, and other non-governmental actors together to support the development of energy resources from initial stages of project design through permitting and consultation to investment decisions, construction operations, and decommissioning.
2: In her current role, she's responsible for integrating and coordinating business investment and operational performance across Shell's lines of business in Canada, including upstream, downstream, integrated gas, and new energies, and is accountable for Shell's overall reputation and stakeholder relations in the country.
1: I was really struck by how thoughtful Susanna was. You can tell that she takes her responsibility very seriously and navigates a ton of complexity with calmness that's definitely admirable.
2: Here is Miro's conversation
0: with Susanna Pierce.
1: So uh, Susanna, it's good to have you
3: here. Tell me what you do at Shell.
0: Let me start with my role. My role is I'm president country chair. And so I took this role on two years ago, which is an exciting time to take it on because our company had rolled out something called Powering Progress, which was our corporate strategy. And it's a strategy that I, you know, I fully believe in because it's got four aspects to it, which is generating shareholder returns, which of course, any company needs to do who has investors, particularly in the public markets. It's respecting uh, or power and lies, which is really looking at how do we promote equity, diversity, inclusion inside our organization, but then also outside of our organization with our partners, with our investments in communities, with how we make sure that we're partnering in the Canadian context with, with Indigenous groups. It's achieving net zero, which of course many people know very well these days, which is how do we make sure that we are delivering decarbonization. Uh, across the various scopes of climate emissions. And then the final piece is respecting nature. And respecting nature is recognizing the finite nature or the finite nature of nature, and that we need to be really th- thoughtful about how we utilize resources. And then how do we make sure that we avoid impacts and where we can't, we mitigate or offset. Now I say that because coming into this role, my role is really to execute powering progress. And so the balance that I see within those four pillars makes me very committed to the, the purpose of the company. And then beyond that, the great thing about it is I can see how each of these pillars can really be achieved within Canada. And with that sense, or in that sense, you know, Canada is looked to by our Shell group as a country where we're involved in all parts of the value chain from exploration and production through to distribution to retail sales. Like you will see when you pull up to the the filling station, the Shell branded filling stations. And so we understand, you know, how we produce and how we distribute and how we sell energy in, in Canada in an integrated basis, maybe more so than many other countries. So it's a great opportunity for me to deliver the strategy across the full value chain, but also in a country that I think is very aligned with the Shell strategy itself, because Canada has upstream exploration and production. Canada also looks to how does it sell energy to consumers here, but then overseas. And so there's some synergies between the country and the company. And then beyond that, Canada, just like our company, is committed to net zero. So I think there's areas for collaboration uh, and coordination that uh, gives me a lot of excitement in the role that I have here today. So you live
3: in Vancouver, No, you you live in Calgary and Vancouver, I
0: think. I live in Vancouver, but uh, my main office is in Calgary. So I'm Mm -hmm. one of those people who has the the great upside of of living in this wonderful city, Uh, having an office in in Calgary, which I spend half the time in. But, But I will add the great thing too, about living in Vancouver, outside of the fact I have two great teenage kids, is that we see a lot of opportunity in, in British Columbia beyond just the LNG Canada project, which which Shell is 40% equity holder of, just some great opportunities in the decarbonization space. So there's great reason for me to be here in town as well.
3: When you look at the Canadian government and its goals, which are very ambitious and it's somewhat controversial in some fronts, with some people anyway, um, what are you doing to really help the Canadian government and Canadians meet those net zero goals?
0: Yeah, I think, um, as I said earlier, uh, the good thing for for us in terms of Shell's perspective of the world is we understand the value chain and we're looking at ourselves. How do we decarbonize each piece of that? So similar to what the country is trying to do as it looks at upstream oil and gas production, as it looks at some of the manufacturing uh, aspects of that, including refining and upgrading, as it looks at how do we decarbonize decarbonize the transportation sector, um, Shell has a perspective that we can borrow from many other centers around the world where we do business. So we bring that to Canada and we take a look at where we have emissions as a company. And then we look across where Canada has emissions and we say, OK, well, this is our experience in some jurisdictions where we think this could work in Canada. For example, um, one of the areas where we're looking at leveraging our experience, very recent experiences in hydrogen. So low carbon hydrogen. How do we look at advancing low carbon hydrogen in Canada that can meet a very specific need in the hard to abate sectors? We also, on the reverse side of things in Canada, have been doing carbon capture sequestration as Shell here for some time. We were the developer and now operator of the Quest CCS project, which is in Alberta, which has been operating now for more than seven years. And it's already captured approximately 7 million tons of of carbon equivalent, and that's significant. So we're able to say, okay, we're looking at these sorts of investments in Canada, which can also help Shell decarbonize, but also help the country. The other thing that we have, as I mentioned earlier, we have a net zero commitment, as does the country. Uh, And so we will meet that net zero commitment as a shell global company. But in doing so, we'll also look at decarbonization opportunities in Canada because there's, there's great opportunity here, I think, again, from the perspective of the underlying foundation, regulatory foundation that we have here. We have a carbon price. We have a clean fuel standard in British Columbia. We have a BC low carbon fuel standard as well. So there's some regulatory measures that incent us to actually take a look at how do we decarbonize. You add on top of that some of the things that the recent budget has laid out federally, and we see you know more opportunity uh, to again look at some of these investments. So all that is to say is that we have parallel commitments to the country and it's, in, it's achieving decarbonization. And I think that sets us up to work well as we sort of identify opportunities, but then say, OK, well, what are the constraints to delivering those opportunities in Canada? And that's probably my number one role, which is how do I attract as much investment in Canada as I can from Shell Group? And and that's not an easy thing, given the fact we operate in so many different countries. And of course, all the various things that we see happening in other countries like the United States. But it does require that I'm creative. It does require that I work with teams here that we have that are solutions oriented. And it requires that we work across stakeholders, governments, indigenous groups, communities, et cetera. And so, uh, yeah, I think we're very much aligned and kind of walking down this path together to try to achieve these decarbonization targets. Maybe the last thing I'll say is that these are not easy. And I think we've all realized that we have to make significant uh, reductions to meet targets in a very short period of time. And as a country uh, and as a, as a global economy that continues to be very largely fossil fuel based, that can only happen with significant disruption. So we need to be mindful about that. We need to think about how do we mitigate that. And it's not going to be easy. But again, that's where we have to roll up our sleeves and say, well, what is possible? What needs to change to make that happen? And then how do we collaborate across the various jurisdictions to see that it does?
3: People have been talking about hydrogen and you know using hydrogen in all kinds of um, ways for decades. In some ways, it's, it's happened. But why why is this the hydrogen moment, do you think?
0: I think this is the hydrogen moment uh, in part because uh, there's been a realization that in achieving our carbon targets, we can't electrify everything. It, it doesn't make sense to electrify everything, particularly in these hard to abate sectors. So sectors that that require uh, a lot of high heat applications. So that could be steel making, cement making, even refining and upgrading. You need to have um, an energy source that can actually provide that level of energy density. And then beyond that, you know, electrification of some of these heavy-duty and medium-duty trucking trucks and and transportation routes is also very difficult because you'll need a very large battery, you'll need a lot of charging infrastructure. Um, And so there's an opportunity there to leverage hydrogen as a source for the non-light-duty transportation um, requirements. So we're seeing that there's application in areas where electrification doesn't work we know that we've been using hydrogen for example in in manufacturing and upgrading refining for some time but now we're seeing how we can use it more broadly we still have a challenge however in making sure that that hydrogen is uh one low carbon so it has to be not gray hydrogen as they call it but hydrogen that if it's made from natural gas you capture the emission emissions and store them or if it's electrolysis that of course that doesn't have the emissions associated with natural gas direct derived hydrogen But once you are able to actually create the hydrogen, now you need to make sure that customers, one, are willing to pay for it, and two, have the infrastructure to consume it. So all that is to say is that we see increasing applications where we can't electrify, we know how to create hydrogen and do it in a low carbon manner, but now what we really need to do is make sure that all pieces of that value chain from the production through to the consumption are working with us. And for us right now, it's really making sure that the price of that hydrogen competes with alternative sources of energy, whether that's diesel or other, And that the consumers have the infrastructure. You know, so for example, I joke about this quite a bit, but if you drive from YVR and you go down Granville and then you look to the right and you see the Shell station, you'll see that we have a hydrogen pump there. The only challenge we've had over the last years that we've had that pump there, not a lot of people are driving hydrogen cars. So while we can produce the hydrogen and we can put a pump in, unless consumers are consuming it because they have hydrogen cars or infrastructure, we're not getting further ahead. So again, we've got to work on the customer base in the right place. And then we'll see things really, I think, take off, particularly in these areas where it's hard to electrify.
3: Is there any particular project that you're involved in um, in Canada or North America that where you really see the future of this?
0: Well, you know, we're involved in a few right now. And to be honest, I can't probably talk about them too broadly right now. But what we are actively doing, as I, I kind of just described, is making sure that each part of that value chain is uh, working together, that we're able to site it in a place where it's acceptable to the communities and indigenous groups, that we can produce the hydrogen in a low-cost, low-carbon manner, that our consumers want to consume it. So we're actively piecing the entire ecosystem together in, in at least a couple jurisdictions, maybe more than that in Canada. And that's fantastic. And what I, it, it gets me very excited. Again, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I compete for capital with the rest of Shell uh, companies all over the globe. So as we do that, we've got to, again, make sure that we're competitive. And that's also part of our challenge, making sure we piece the pieces together. And then at the end of the day, that we provide the right uh, and most optimal investment opportunity for Shell so we can get that capital to invest.
3: Vancouver, of course, has one of North America's biggest ports on the West Coast. I understand Shell's doing some work with them on the diesel front. Can you explain that?
0: Yeah, we partnered um, with the Port of Vancouver. And this is something which, again, is is presenting or providing renewable diesel which can be used in a variety of marine shipping applications. And and that's something which we've been looking at, again, as one of those interim steps where prior to getting into some of the future fuels, including some hydrogen, that there's an easier way to decarbonize shipping fuels. And that's through renewable diesel, which basically supplants fossil fuel based diesel, but can lower emissions quite significantly. And so in this sense, we've got this low emission technology initiative, which is a partnership between the port Province of British Columbia to try out these zero and low emissions fuels and technologies. And we are, of course, providing the renewable diesel and there it's being used for about three different uh, uses, including for the patrol boat, the locomotive and a support truck. So testing it all through and it's going quite well.
3: How do you make renewable diesel?
0: Yeah so renewable diesel is typically using um either uh sort of used or or canola oil or used cooking oil and that's essentially processing it the same way that you would use diesel but it's with of course a renewable uh, feedstock so that's basically how you would create it and then the good thing about it is you can drop it into the existing infrastructure um typically the same sorts of uh trucks and and ships in the sense that you have in the past and by doing so you can also lower emissions by close to 85% so you can use it with existing diesel engines, you can lower your emissions quite quite substantially. So that's the nice thing about it, where the customers don't have to make a whole bunch of upfront investments in order to consume this lower carbon fuel.
3: How much of what Shell is doing will impact the carbon footprint of cities, do you think? After all, we're called City Age, and that's what we really spend our time on is you know, how do we build cities for the future? Yeah. Um, 70% yeah. of you know GHGs are coming from cities in some manner. How does this change that?
0: Well, it's a great it's a great question because cities are are very, as you mentioned, they're they're a high source of emissions because of the variety of different emission sources. You've got buildings, you've got cars and trucks, um, and so one of the things that we are actively pursuing is we have a municipal sectors team, so a team that looks at municipalities all over the globe, and we come in and we sit down with them and we say, okay, where are your emissions coming from? And our Shell Solutions team will then say, well, this is how we can actually help you remove some of those emissions. So, for example, if the city, the city of Vancouver, has a bunch of fleet vehicles that they drive around the city, if those are presently using diesel or gasoline, we can work with them to establish EV charging. We can work with them to make sure that they have, again, these Shell charging stations where all of those fleet vehicles could recharge. So we'll help them on the transportation side of things. We can look at building efficiency. So how do we help you optimize your buildings by going through a process of looking at where are the emissions coming from? How do we help you decarbonize? We have things like virtual power plants where we can also help uh, cities procure renewable power instead of actually having to, again, procure power where it's more carbon intensive. This isn't so much a problem in Vancouver, but in other cities it is. And the other thing that we also do that can also help with cities is very often cities have challenge just getting um, budgets approved. Well, we can enter into a relationship where we would put the capital up front for the infrastructure and then basically charge that back. So cities can avoid having to go through huge budgetary measures, but we can enter into a relationship where we can basically set up the infrastructure and then charge it back almost on a, on a leased basis. And, and that can also work out quite well for cities. So in short, it's looking at the city's footprint, finding where the emissions are coming from, and then working to derive solutions for them to help them get uh, those emissions down
3: that that's hardly your uh, the traditional view of what an oil company does i would say
0: <laughs> well it's it's it isn't but you know com- shell has always been looking at things that, on what we call shell solutions and the, the thing that we also look at is where do we see opportunities to provide some of these lower carbon fuels that can generate a return for us as a business but then also help us meet our decarbonization commitments as well so there can be a nice relationship there where we can sell lower carbon fuels It helps us reduce emissions. And and we're constantly looking for customers in that sense. And cities are definitely one of those that we look to as well.
3: How confident are you, Susanna, that the world will reach net zero by 2050? Everyone's saying it. It's a daunting task, but where do you stand on it personally?
0: Well, personally, it's a daunting task, and I think um, the challenge is one where, as I mentioned earlier, we are still uh, producing emissions using fossil fuels and there's still increasing demand in a growing economy uh, all over the world and economies that you know, are, are, are low-income economies that would like to prosper. And so there's going to be increasing demand for energy. And our challenge has got to be accelerating investments and technologies that provide low-carbon energy. But it requires the greatest amount Of collaboration uh, and commitment, that you know, I we speak about what happened during COVID in Canada. Everybody saw that we had a challenge. We had to work together to achieve the best outcome. That's kind of the same thing we've got here, except it's it feels less of a present crisis to so many because that's why we're not seeing the same level of I think collaboration. So I guess the biggest obstacle that I see is not one that there's a variety of different technology solutions and pathways we can we can find. It's just how do we get the various stakeholders, governments, subnational governments working together? And how do we make sure that if one nation uh, continues to increase emissions, that another nation doesn't think that that's the license for them not to reduce? So we have to create the right sorts of incentives to make that happen. And one of the things that I'm very much a proponent of, and it's very challenging for us in Canada, is that we see increased collaboration across the provinces because we are a country, of course, And each of the provinces has different trade-offs and different emissions profiles um, as it relates to to GHGs or greenhouse gases. But we will not get there if we have siloed climate policies, if we reduce the scale of the market in which we can find the lowest carbon abatement opportunities. And yet in Canada, we still have these these sub-national climate policies that don't speak to each other. So I think for me, going to your question, I don't think it's so much that we don't know how to get there. I think the challenge is just the embedded um it's just the, the embedded ways that we work across jurisdictions or don't that we have siloed climate policies and that we haven't really got the right incentive structures in place to make it make the investments happen as quickly as they need to so i'm 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 i continue to be an optimist because i continue to look for ways where we might find great uh solutions and ways of working better together than we have um but i it's a huge challenge for everyone and i i'm I'm not sure on the tally yet because we still have to to work every day to help us decarbonize and find those fiscal and regulatory and, and collaboration solutions, but it's a huge challenge.
3: So, Susanna, one of the things that really impressed me about you and last time we met was your involvement in the Wilding Institute. And uh, I wonder if you could explain that to the listeners.
0: Yeah. So, the, the Wilder Institute is associated um, with the Calgary Zoo. And, and it's an organization. It's a nonprofit, actually. That recognizes the importance of um, species at risk, species at risk rehabilitation and reentry, and how important it is for biodiversity or bio-diver- to avoid biodiversity loss as it relates to our planet. And for me, as somebody who is is in Shell, uh, and as I mentioned, very keen to make sure that we understand how we impact nature, this seemed to me to be a great fit to join an organization that's on the front line of protecting and restoring biodiversity. So that's why I joined them. And they are, again, looking at rehabilitating and, and providing re-entry to a number of species, including here in BC. And again, it goes hand in hand, I think, with climate, as you would know. And, and that for me, again, joins up my interest in how do we advance decarbonization, but then also how do we make sure that we protect and restore biodiversity, which could be significantly impacted and is being impacted by climate change.
3: Yeah, it seems to me you're thinking that that's a very those are very local um, solutions, uh, whereas these other ones you're talking about are very global or international.
0: Well, indeed, I mean biodiversity is 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 going to be something that is 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 local. Although again, you can take global actions, as we've seen in the recent COP in Montreal, which can have an impact on how we protect biodiversity. But climate change is a global issue, so emissions impact the global climate, as opposed to something that happens in a particular jurisdiction as it relates to a species at risk. Uh, is more localized. But again, you look at this from the perspective of the global population as well.
3: Susanna, when you go into your office every morning, what's the coolest thing you see?
0: Uh, Well, (laughs) outside of the pictures of my kids, who are the best kids in the world, of course, um, I have a mask that I got from the Heisla village and master carver Sammy Robinson. And it's a beautiful, it's one of the first pieces of indigenous art that I ever purchased in British Columbia. But it has these outstanding, beautiful abalone eyes. And the sun can glisten on it through my office window. And it's it's truly spiritual. But it's also very grounding. Because one of the other experiences that I had when I moved to BC back in 2013 is I don't think I really understood how connected we all are to nature. And it began my journey, my personal realization about how Indigenous communities truly do understand that and Mother Earth. So everything that we are experiencing here and trying to come back to that sense of stability and grounding uh, with nature is something that indigenous communities have never lost. And so this mask again, for me in my office brings me back to Kitimat village and to Sammy Robinson, the master carver, but it's also a very, uh, a very good reminder uh, for me about my role and, and how I am from and, and need to protect nature.
3: You know, you're, you're, one of Canada's top CEOs in North America's, too, in a you know, very high-pressured uh, job. What's the best advice you've ever been given?
0: Well, that's a good one because I've been given a lot of advice <laughs> and have needed a lot of advice. But the other thing that I do is I, I read quite a bit and uh, and look at some very successful people uh, uh, that have been on this earth. Um, and one of the quotes that that I've always really liked, and I use it for myself and I use it for my kids, is by Steve Jobs. And he said, your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. And I can't think of a better reminder or expression for us today that we can get stuck in the old ways of thinking, particularly given the challenges we have ahead of us. Now, we need to remember the past, not to repeat it, but we have to continue to think broadly and outside of the, bo- of the box and think about all the various different views to make our our views even better.
3: And Susanna, is there, you know, as you go and do your work day to day, is there a buzzword that you just really wish wasn't there?
0: <laughs> well, one that sort of strikes me that gets overused um, and really needs greater definition is, uh, is green this or green that. Um, I, I think it's very important, again, coming back to this sort of, we need to electrify everything and electrification is all good. Well, it's it's not an all entirely green too. You know, if you think about the land impact of solar panels, or you think about again some of the impact of wind turbines or how and where wind turbines are manufactured, these are not purely green technologies. And so I think it's important for us when we say stuff like green, what do we really mean? Because there is really no pure green thing. There may be less impacts and there are trade-offs, but we shouldn't use bucket terms like that to to create positions and and make decisions.
3: Great, Susanna, thanks for talking to us.
0: Well, thank you. It's, uh, it's been fun.
3: Yeah. And we'll hope to hopefully see you
1: at H pretty soon.
0: I look forward to that. That'd be great.
1: And we're back. Another great conversation. I especially appreciated what Susanna said about electrification and this idea that we can't just electrify everything. Sometimes the focus on electrification can feel lopsided when we know we actually need a collection of different types of solutions.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, This was the second last episode of season two. Our final episode is in two weeks where I will be talking to the president of the Howard Hughes Corporation, Jay Cross.
1: Second last episode, the penultimate episode, one of my favorite words. Mm -hmm. Um, If you've liked this second season of the City Age podcast, please give us a rating wherever you listen. We love doing this and we don't plan on stopping anytime soon. So your support means a lot. This was the City Age podcast, and we'll see you next time because, after all, you can't build the future alone.